you are listening to Kubernetes Bytes, a podcast bringing you the latest from the world of cloud-native data management. My name is Ryan Walner, and I'm joined by Bob and Shaw, coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. We'll be sharing our thoughts on recent cloud-native news and talking to industry experts about their experiences and challenges managing the wealth of data in today's cloud-native ecosystem. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. We are coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. Today is February 7th, 2024. Hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Let's dive into it. This is, uh, I can't believe we're already in February. January just flew by. Uh, I had a couple of work trips, one small PTO. So I've uh, been trying to maintain this cadence. Obviously, uh, hopefully you guys like the episodes that we have been bringing you this year. And I'm not making that great a progress on my new year resolutions, uh, but at least I'm tracking them this year. So hopefully you are doing better at those than I am at mine. Uh, before we dive into the topic for today, we have a great interview lined up around one of the most like one of the requested topics uh, from our listeners. Uh, before we do that, let's let's talk about a couple of things that are happening in the cloud native ecosystem. Uh, so. In terms of news, uh, we, we have two acquisitions. The first one being Dynatrace acquires a startup or a company called Runecast or Runcast, uh, R-U-N-E-C-A-S-T, right? Uh, so Runecast was a vendor that I came across when I think I went to VMworld or VMware Explorer back in 2018 or 2019. Uh, they were a, a, a security firm that were helping build or helping provide like a security posture management solution to VMware customers. Uh, I think that Dynatrace acquiring them definitely helps them uh, expand their contextual security uh, protection and analytics platform and helps them bring those capabilities, the security posture management capabilities for the hybrid and multi-cloud environments. Uh, Personally, I also feel this gives Dynatrace a foot in the door for existing VMware customers, especially customers that are looking to modernize their infrastructure and application stacks as we are in the quarter, uh, first quarter of 2024, calendar 2024. Uh, but yeah, that, that was an acquisition. The, the price wasn't really disclosed. Uh, I thought we'll just discuss it since uh, Dynatrace is a vendor that mo many people use or, uh, in the cloud native ecosystem. Next up, I think from uh, we have another acquisition. Uh, Chronosphere acquires Calyptia. I, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, guys. Uh, Calyptia was, uh, I think, was the original creator of the Fluent ecosystems of Fluent D and Fluent Bit. All of those open source tools that you see in in the CNCF landscape, those were built by Calyptia. Again, I only found out about Calyptia because of this acquisition news, but. Again, seems like an important vendor in our ecosystem, right? Because anytime we, like when we were preparing for our certified Kubernetes admins or application developer courses, or whenever we talk about logging in general, when it comes to these cloud native applications, we think about Fluent, uh, Fluent D running on our host set as a daemon set, right? So uh, this acquisition will allow Chronosphere to add the observability pipeline product that's that was built on top of FluentBit uh, into the Chronosphere platform, which enables routing transformation and optimization of log data at scale. So uh, we'll link to a, 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 the acquisition blog in the show notes or the press release in the show notes so you can read more about like how these two companies are planning on working together going forward. But another uh, exit for a startup in the cloud native ecosystem. Personally, I have a feeling that 2024 is going to be the year of mergers and acquisitions, if not IPOs, but 
we have been seeing a lot of mergers and acquisitions to start of the year but i think i'm hoping for at least that the ipo start rolling in the the second half so the third quarter or the fourth quarter of calendar the year 2024 uh, but here's to hoping right uh, that that's it for news today i couldn't find anything else that's happening from any of the vendors in the product ecosystem so we'll just keep it short uh, for the news today uh, diving into the topic for today uh, we are going to be talking with jason uh, from suze he's the director of edge engineering uh, again a, a great participant in the cloud native uh, ecosystem or cloud native community i know he has done stints at red hat and, and google cloud and has been a vocal advocate or uh, for kubernetes and openshift and all of the the technologies that that we love today um, so we'll be chatting with him about k3s what it is how to deploy it how it works how the security and storage work and all all the good things so without further ado let's bring jason on the pod this episode is brought to you by our friends from elotil Elotil Luna is an intelligent Kubernetes cluster autoscaler that provisions just-in-time, right-sized, and cost-effective compute for your Kubernetes apps. The compute is scaled both up and down as your workloads demand change, thereby reducing operational complexity and preventing wasted spend. Luna is ideally suited for dynamic and bursty workloads such as dev test workloads, machine learning jobs, stream processing workloads, as well as workloads that need special resources such as GPUs or ARM-based instances. Luna is generally available on Amazon EKS, Google Cloud GKE, Azure AKS, and Oracle OKE. Learn more about Luna at elotil.co slash Luna and download their free trial at elotil.co slash Luna dash free dash trial. Hey Jason, welcome to Kubernetes Bytes. Thank you for joining us for this episode to talk more about K3S. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us more about what you do uh, at your day job? Sure, and thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited. It's been too long since I've got to sit here and, and nerd chat with somebody, uh, and, and I'm really excited for this. Uh, so my name is Jason Nobis. I am a Director of Engineering at SUSE. Uh, SUSE known for a long time for our Linux distribution. Uh, a couple years ago, purchased Rancher and uh, a major player in the Kubernetes space. Uh, and then very recently, over the last year, we have built up an edge department. I am one of the two directors of engineering in that edge department. Um, we're looking to flesh out our portfolio and try to release something in the next couple of months. Um, in addition to that, I'm an adjunct professor, uh, which is a really cool sounding way of saying part-time. Uh, I teach uh, software engineering in the spring and then senior projects in the fall. Um, and I mention that now because there's uh, a handful of times I may say something like my students. And if without that intro, it gets very awkward to picture yeah. me at work referring to them as my students. <laughs> okay. No, I, I keep forgetting about the professor thing. thing so I'm glad that you brought that up. Uh, so some background for this episode, right? We Ryan and I did like a Kubernetes at the Edge 101 episode where we spoke about some of the challenges that exist at the Edge and talk about K3S and MicroKates and some of those solutions that are out there. And then we actually got feedback that, oh, can you do a deep dive on K3S? And when I saw that you you now lead engineering at SUSE around Kubernetes at the edge, I was like, okay, perfect guy to have on the pod. Yeah, so, that worked that well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so let me start there, right? Like I want to get your perspective. Like why do you think Kubernetes in general is a better solution for these edge deployments? Uh, 
Go ahead. Yeah. So uh, better is an interesting term there because um, I, 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 it's interesting depending on what you compare it to. Um, we're in a really fun space right now because there's really no incumbent. We're, we're not yep. looking to compete with something that's been around for decades and, you know, SQL has been around for like uh, 70, 90 years by now. Uh, we're not like that. We're in an area where the space is growing, but the solutions just aren't there yet. Um, mm -hmm. So when you say better, it's an interesting question because there's no real kind of incumbent that we're like, hey, we're, we're going to take this on. We're going to replace it. Um, but why is okay. it good? Um, God, there's a lot of variety of reasons here. Um, one of the things is that we have a lot of customers and a lot of people moving to Kubernetes in general for mm -hmm. reasons I'm sure you have covered a thousand times now on this podcast. So I won't dig too deep, but I will mention that being able to put it at the edge keeps the same APIs, the same mm -hmm. deployment structure, keeps all of your knowledge that you're used to and lets you apply that now to the edge. So I'm certainly not about to say all of the problems are solved. And if it was, I wouldn't have a job. We wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> but it does reduce quite a bit where your learning curve is not quite so huge because you understand mm -hmm. how to interact. You understand this declarative model and how to say this is what I want. And you understand. And you, of course, being the admin who is comfortable with Kubernetes, um, which in and of itself is... Uh, different for your traditional admins who like to know every little bit and piece of yep. where everything is running, that doesn't scale to the edge. So being able to rely on Kubernetes and say, look, just get this out there, keep it running and tell me if something's wrong is, is a really, really nice incentive there. Um, on top of that, you get all of the other projects and ecosystem around Kubernetes that, um, you know, in varying degrees is applicable to the edge. Some of them are more heavyweight, but at the end of the day, a lot of the work you've done to certify for security and the hardening mm -hmm. in your data center now basically gets transferred to the edge with Kubernetes out there. Um, and you can fit it into a lot of your existing workflows. So um, at the risk of, of trivializing it too much, you basically get a similar API that you're used to working with inside a data center, but now it's going to bridge to all of these edge systems and all of these edge environments where you traditionally can't interact with them in the way you would with a data center. No, I think I like that answer, right? Like the, the consistent API server experience, because in the past I used to work at Lenovo and we had like an edge solution, which was more hardware based. We had like a ruggedized server that we sold to customers who wanted to deploy like a two node thing, but then eventually talking to different customers and even at the same customer, different sites became kind of a, that snowflake environment, right? Like they didn't know what was actually being deployed or how it was being managed. Some were running virtual machines on top of like a Windows a server instance. Some were running like bare metal applications. So no, I think Kubernetes definitely brings that consistent experience for sure. Yeah, yeah. And um, holy cow, I just completely brain farted. So let's just keep moving. <laughs> Okay. Uh, so uh, like next question I wanted to ask was like, Kubernetes is great, right? Like, as you said, we have covered it a thousand times already, but why did we need like a different distribution? Why couldn't we just take Kubernetes and run it at the edge? Why K3S? Yeah. So I, I love this as a question because so much of this speaks to kind of my experience with K3S. So I've been working with Kubernetes probably six or seven years now. Um, mm -hmm. I've played with different distributions and models, uh, and a lot of them are very heavyweight and fat. Um, so I was doing developer advocacy, trying to convince developers like, yeah, this is why you want to use Kubernetes. 
but you need six nodes in AWS and you can practically hear the bill ticking yeah. up as you're running it. And that's that's a very hard sell to your typical developer who, uh, and I know I'm not talking about Edge yet, but I'll get there, I promise. But that's a very hard sell to your um, traditional developer who's like, I just want to run it on my laptop. Um, they always say like, so I can do it on a plane. I sleep on planes, but that's beside the story. Um, with the Edge, um, <laughs> well, that's what I thought of that one. I actually just popped my stress ball on top of everything else. I'm now covered in sand. Um, so, uh, so what do we need? We needed something lightweight. Uh, so yep. it's it started from this developer setup. Um, the first time I played with K3S, by comparison, it was incredible. Um, I, I ran a basically single command, and then it just looked at me in the shell, and I'm like, it, it, okay. And I cube cuddled, get nodes, and it ran. I was like, oh my god, this is insane. Yeah. Uh, so now let's take that from a development environment, and everyone's like, this is awesome. I can finally do stuff on my laptop or in my home basement. I'm sorry, my home lab in my basement. Uh, nice. But now um, that's very similar in a lot of ways to your edge environments. You have these lower resources. You don't want to be spending um, massive amounts of compute power for a coffee shop down the road or something like that. So you want something very, very lightweight, um, incredibly easy to install. Um, mm -hmm. And that's admittedly a loaded statement. I mean, depending on how much tweaking you want to do, you can always overcomplicate it. But Really, that lightweight aspect of it was um, absolutely compelling from the start as a developer standpoint. And then as Edge kind of grew, we're like, this is, this is kind of perfect, actually. This is ex yeah. exactly what we need out there. Okay. And that makes sense, right? Like, and like my next question focuses around some of those aspects. Like, we have a technical audience for this podcast, so don't, don't hold back. But the uh, question is, like, how is K3S, like from a deployment perspective, from an architecture, uh, architecture perspective, different for, from like a vanilla open source Kubernetes or any of the other Kubernetes distributions that are out there. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned this is a technical audience because I could just dive into the easiest one is it is a single binary, um, about 100 megs. And that in and of itself is really wild because it is able to embed a lot of the core infrastructure you expect to see with Kubernetes inside of this binary. Mm -hmm. So I alluded to it earlier, but the install at its simplest, and again, this is slightly different for production, but is effectively, you download a shell script, you run it, and to die, you have K3S. Um, gotcha. So now we're looking at this single binary with um, everything inside of it. In a um, default deployment, you'll actually be running SQLite instead of etcd. Uh, obviously, there's scaling issues there. It's the trade-off, right? It's, yes, yep. you don't scale like you would, but at the same time, you're not using the resources you would either. Uh, and back to my home lab or Raspberry Pi or my laptop, I don't want to be running a full etcd server, especially if I don't need to. So you have all of this uh, as this package binary, and you can still run it as a, a systemd service. Um, at the end of the day, though, it is still Kubernetes. Uh, same ports are open, same APIs, uh, same data types, same manifests. Uh, so let me be very clear that it's different from K3S and like that architecture standpoint. Actually, let me get back to that for a second. Um, you can still absolutely deploy it multi-node and HA okay. server agent environment. Um, your vanilla install and the, the one I would typically run on my laptop or in a CICD system is going to be a single node, but there's absolutely the option to set up your HA clusters and everything you would expect out of Kubernetes. Um, it is just smaller and very, very yeah. lightweight. Um, 
and it makes for uh, it, it's also as scalable as you would expect it to be. Um, we do mm-hmm. have customers running over a thousand nodes in a single edge cluster. Oh wow! On top of K3s, yeah. So your gut reaction. Uh, any developer is going to look at it and say, particularly the admins, like, there's no way this single binary is like, this is a cute Give toy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm sure that was part of my thought initially. Like, okay, this is cute. Like, give me something real. Uh, and then you start to look around, you're like, people are using this and they're using it very, very well. Interesting. Okay, like my, one of my questions that I had for today was like, how small does the setup need to be? Like, if it's a single node, non-HA thing, can it run out like one node, or does it still need like three nodes for some sort of HA? But if there are people running thousand nodes, <laughs> it covers the other side of it for sure. That's exactly right. And you know, when you're talking about the edge, HA is not necessarily table stakes like it is yeah. in many environments. Um, we actually have been researching into two-node HA, which mm-hmm. is a bit of an oxymoron in and of itself. Um, but looking at these smaller footprints that don't want a massive HA overhead because they don't need it. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I refer to this coffee shop type of model where, yeah. like, you know, the, the world continues to go. That's probably a bad example. If a coffee shop goes down and people can't get caffeine, that is riot worthy. But mm-hmm. come with me on this. I'm glad you appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's like, what is our mission critical applications? Healthcare? I'm like, it's the coffee people, guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they uh, don't necessarily need full HA at the edge. You have other options for your uptime. You have situations where the uptime isn't quite as critical. Um, mm-hmm. And this is, I'm, I'm going to pause on this because I'm sure the questions will come back to it. But Edge has such a variety of use cases that yep. HA is not the, the be-all and end-all of everything that people need to deploy. Yeah, it, it's de- HA definitely has like a different meaning when it comes to these Edge locations, right? Last year, we had uh, somebody from Chick-fil-A uh, on the podcast, and they had like they run like a three-node Intel Nook-based K3S cluster at one of those every one of those Chick-fil-A locations. And th- they were not th- just thinking about HA in terms of like the Kubernetes or K3S clusters, but they also were thinking about HA in terms of network connectivity because still they had like a core environment sitting outside the edge locations. And they're like, if my physical network that I'm paying money for goes out, they had like an LTE fallback on. So like HA definitely has different meanings, different implementations when we are talking about these, uh, these edge deployments. Yeah, I love how you put that. Different meetings, different implementations. It's it's an it's an interesting twist for people who have been preaching HA for years now to start thinking, okay, it's not a data center where we can very easily section things off and have yeah. redundancies and redundancies in our network and power and so forth. Um, it, it's funny. It's almost, you know, when you think back to early computing in the 70s and 80s when space was at a premium, memory was at a premium, mm-hmm. and then we all got really complacent when things blew up and all of my code is fat and ugly and just takes up as much space as you give it. And all of a sudden now we're like, oh crap, we got to go back to these smaller types of setups. And we actually have to start thinking about assumptions we may have made during this boom of extra hardware and say, all right, you know, does this actually apply here? Yeah, no, I I completely agree. I think I've anecdotally heard stories that senior developers or staff developers at organizations just uh, took resources for granted like oh it's on aws like i don't need to build my application efficiently i can just put more resources behind it and now it's coming back to them and then they now have to like 
design the application almost from from scratch and make sure that they are they can keep up without adding a lot of cost underneath it. So. Yeah, oh, that's exactly right. For years of my and you know this speaks volumes to uh, how lazy of a coder I am. But for years I haven't had to concern about memory footprints because just yeah. throw. A couple more gigs in there, you're fine. Uh, all of a sudden, when you're talking about these nukes and these Raspberry Pis, you're like, oh, yeah. everything feels very, very small around here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so like, let's talk about like a, what a vanilla deployment for K3S looks like, right? So you said SQLite as that key value data store. What else? Does it have a kubelet? Does it have a control plane component? Like, is it, does it run as a pod? How, how do you deploy containers or pods on it, right? Sure. So uh, for a single node, um, it acts basically just like that, a single node. So okay. your control plane is intermixed with your user workloads. Um, and again, and I, I feel like I keep saying this, but in these environments, sometimes that's okay. Uh, yeah. If you're not too particularly worried about security or your uptime on your control plane, um, those can traditionally be fine. Um, talk in terms of something like storage, we've seen options where people will deploy on a single node and just simply use local storage, mm -hmm. which you know obviously has its limitations. If that machine goes down or if that hard drive uh, falls over, then yep. it, you're in a little bit of trouble. But it's a trade-off you can make versus sending Chick-fil-A a server rack and having a bunch of Chick-fil-A employees <laughs> be like, what is this thing? And why is it 50 degrees in this one tiny room in the entire restaurant? Um, Can I power my air fryer though? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I still remember early in my career, the first time I walked into a like a server room, I'm like, why is it so cold in here? And that was the lesson of, hey, heat is a concern. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, you know, that's, that's totally an option. Um, there are, you, you know, you have your CNI interfaces, you can plug in your own CSI back and you can build it up as necessary. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, by default, um, it will be single node. You deploy your workloads directly into it um, and largely just uses namespaces to keep uh, the, the, the control plane stuff separate from what you okay. would want to be touching. Gotcha. And so like we spoke about like the single node version, right? But in your conversations with the, in, inside the community or with customers, right? Do prefer users usually do it in a single node fashion or they have like the two node, the three node deployments to, to have some sort of resiliency at the edge? Yeah, so the, the podcast can't see me smiling at that, but uh, I, was, I was smiling because we are working on a product called Edge Image Builder, which is meant mm -hmm. to build a single image with everything you would need to run a cluster at the edge. So your K3S install, your operating system, the configuration mm -hmm. on it and so forth. And it was considerably simpler to add in single node K3S. I'm like, can yep. we just ship this? And everybody stared at me. I'm like, okay, fine, we'll add HA. Uh, <laughs> so yes, there is absolutely a need for adding it. Um, the configuration, the setup is actually really, really slick. It's largely just saying this one's a server, this one's an agent. And um, again, not to trivialize it or downplay mm -hmm. it, it's, it's capabilities or the amount of work that went into making it that simple, but it really is very slick when you look at it in that perspective. Um, and yeah, there's absolutely people using it in HA, even if mm -hmm. my dev brain just thinks it's running on my laptop, I don't particularly care. I'm going to keep it up for 10 <laughs> seconds and then I'm going to, you know, rebuild it because I screwed something up. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, so like, are there any prereqs that listeners should know about, right? Like, do I need four CPUs or do I need eight gigs of RAM? Like from a resource perspective, are there uh, minimum requirements that, that they should keep in mind? There's probably 
listed somewhere some minimum and and, rec- and recommended. Um, what I can okay. say is it's nowhere near that beefy. Um, there are mm-hmm. absolutely Raspberry <laughs> Pi instructions that yeah. say the only thing with Raspberry Pis is you have to explicitly enable C groups because it's not by default. Um, okay. But being able to run it on a Raspberry Pi kind of indirectly answers that question because that is a um, this sounds obnoxious. That is a very low bar in a very intentional way. Don't, I'm not dunking our Raspberry Pis here, but uh, that is that is a very low bar. And if we could say, yes, you are capable of running on that. Uh, it, it shows you just how small that footprint actually is. Okay, gotcha. So like, I know we already spoke a bit about how storage is handled, right? With maybe using local disks, but I'm sure like you said, like, okay, we can package up any CSI based uh, storage provider if we want to but do you see people storing data at these edge locations for a longer duration of time or they're just using it as scratch spray space if i don't come up with a better word but just like use it keeping it there for a couple of hours and then pushing everything back to the data center or the cloud environment yeah holy cow what a great question um and the answer as with everything with edges, it really depends on the use case and the cost. It's, man, yeah. again, as a teacher, that's such a cop-out answer. Like, it depends. Can you not ask me yeah. that again? Uh, I do have a real answer, though. Um, okay. So there are absolutely use cases where they do not want to be sending a lot of data across the wire. Either okay. it's going as far as like a satellite connection or if it's mm-hmm. sending a absolutely ton of data. So you've got to figure, we haven't talked about the edge use cases yet, but when you factor in something like IoT and you are measuring readings uh, every second and you're getting all of this data, that across the wire is extraordinarily painful. So mm-hmm. having that cached and dealt with at the edge side and then summary sent across the wire or some sort of calculation sent across the wire um, reduces uh, that, that bandwidth between your edge sites and your data center. And again, mm-hmm. we were joking a couple minutes ago about we've gotten so used to big resources. We've gotten so used to good network connections. And <laughs> I, I stream video all the time and yeah. uh, I'm, I don't think twice about it, but that's not always the case. So if we can offload some of that to the edge sites, have them deal with a lot of the data and then send a summary, that is a very viable option. Another concern is data privacy and concerns, Mm -hmm. where when you start getting into healthcare situations, they don't want to be sending a ton of customer information that uh, violates any number of four-letter acronyms out there that you're not allowed to send data across. (laughs) So can we do the calculations on the edge side and then send across the net results or some kind of summary, some kind of status. Um, And all of that is outside of any kind of air gap situation Mm -hmm. where you're talking about government, defense, things like that, where they straight up don't have the ability to send it back or or don't want to for whatever reason. Uh, So the answer is yes to all of them. Um, The important takeaway here is Again, that mentality shift of resources are suddenly becoming finite again in a very weird way at the edge. Um, yep. And it's, it's, it's a callback to 20, 30 years ago that um, you, you, you have to consider that network pipe. And yeah, maybe it doesn't make sense to shove everything across the wire. Maybe mm-hmm. edge does hold on to it and have its own security policies, obviously, but then it's able to do its calculations, its summaries, and sent across a smaller report or an interval-based report or an emergency report of, yeah, not going to say anything unless something is wrong, in which case then it's going to start yelling back to the data center. Gotcha. 
Okay, interesting. And you've brought up data privacy, right? Which, like, I, I think it's a perfect segue for the next question that's around focused around security. Like, how do I make sure that I, I don't expose those API server endpoints from all of these edge locations? That's just being one of those concerns, right? Like, how, how do I secure my K3S clusters? Because ideally, I might have, like, tens or hundreds or if not thousands of these different edge locations that I have to manage remotely. How do I make sure I'm securing each one of those? Yeah, and I love the fact that you went to that scale. Uh, I think that's the scale we need to be thinking at with edge of the tens mm -hmm. of thousands. Um, you know, K3S has that baked into it. It is hardened. We're working toward FIPS compliancy. Um, it is secure just by default. Uh, and then if you, if you look at the entire suite or the entire solution, you put that on an operating system that has also been tailor-made to be secure in these situations. Something mm -hmm. like Slee Micro, which is a um, immutable file system and, and built to be lightweight and also secure and try to prevent some of these situations. Um, you've started to realize the entire solution from the ground up really has to be architected with that in mind, particularly as laws get more and more strict about this stuff. And let me be very clear, rightfully so strict. That's, yeah. that's certainly not a knock on them. Um, but as that starts to happen, you realize, hey, it's a little more than just can we send this over SSL and, and be done with it. Um, yep. So on top of that, uh, you have uh, other abilities, something like New Vector that comes in and is a uh, security platform doing runtime enforcement, doing your mm -hmm. container image scanning and so on and so forth. Um, you have your network policies that you can uh, implement just like you would on a normal Kubernetes structure, okay. uh, cluster. So at that rate, you're looking at, um, and this goes all the way back to the very beginning, right? Like using a Kubernetes-based distro gives us that option to use this wide ecosystem of products. Um, or you look at a solution like what we're pitching with our Edge product of, hey, here are all these products working together mm -hmm. and answering these types of particular questions because you were absolutely right for asking them. These are very, very valid questions that um, we keep joking about the, the resource um, yeah. differences, but it's also the where the data lives. Um, and suddenly that's a bigger deal of, Chick-fil-A is a great example. Like something tells me that's not quite as secure as your traditional data center. I'm going to say that's a pretty safe guess. Yeah, you can't have bodyguards or, or restrict people to physically access your Chick-fil-A location. That's right. Now you got to get the employee there to go bounce the server or something like that. It doesn't really work that way. Yeah. Okay. So like when you talk to a, a lot of people, right? These are definitely great things that people should keep in mind, but are there like security best practices that you, you tell them like, okay, these are the common issues that I have seen. Please fix this and then think about everything else. Like, are there any low hanging fruits you want to share? Um, low hanging fruits, let's see. Uh, don't make your root password password. Uh, no, I, yeah, just, you can write that down if you want. We'll, uh, we'll send out the list. No, honestly, to be perfectly honest, this is slightly outside of my area of expertise. Um, okay. So I don't want to drive people in the wrong direction. Um, so I'll kind of simply reiterate, the tools are out there. Um, yep. You look at the CNCF landscape in general, and there are a number of players in this all addressing these. So if nothing else, knowing you have to ask those questions is the really yep. important part because there are the answers out there. That part of this is part of the solution is there where multiple people playing and we understand. And I guess I can I can provide a summary of um, you want your containers to be scanned themselves. Um, mm -hmm. That can go all the way back to your S bombs and your um, 
the other term related to S bonds, the whole uh, accountability of all your your yeah. artifacts going into your builds, um, your network security. There are platforms and plugins for that. Uh, your operating system is still potentially a vulnerable vector if you were to go and pick some generic open source Linux distribution that is not meant to be hardened by default, or is they never intended yeah. it that way. So, like, don't assume that it it will be. Like, yeah, agree. yeah. You know, it's it's there's I'm sure there's people out there who are like, oh well Linux, it's 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 not I feel bad saying this, I probably shouldn't, but like, oh it's not Windows, <laughs> Linux is fairly secure. <laughs> yeah, well there's another level of that. Um so realizing the different touch points that you have to be cognizant of. Um mm -hmm. choosing a secure version of Kubernetes that has actually had this hardening on top of it. Um, all of that factors into it. So in terms of low-hanging fruit, the biggest thing to realize is just there are a lot of areas to consider. Um, and there mm -hmm. are solutions out there. And there are companies like SUSE who are putting these solutions together and saying, if, if, and I'm sure many, many of the listeners here have seen the CNC landscape page with, oh, yeah. Last I checked, we're at what, 30,000 icons on it. It actually crashed my machine last time I opened it. Yeah. Um, having someone to guide you through that and say, we have tested this particular combination and we stand behind it, mm -hmm. um, that is absolutely crucial because you do not. No one has the time to go through that landscape image, uh, much less test them out and come up with their own decision. I know. And that's the thing that I like, right? Like the, the CNCF is open, like full of possibilities, but do you want, really want to spend the time and figure out how these things interoperate with each other and oh. which is the best one in each layer of the stack? So yeah, I, I like that you, you said, like there's a vendor out there who will support all of these things for you. Yeah, we, we've done some re the research, we've done the integrations mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I love using that landscape diagram as it, it's it's a pro in so many ways, shows that yeah. the living ecosystem, shows the investment. And at the same time, if it scares you, that's a good thing because mm -hmm. it kind of should. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy just because there's choice. Oh, yeah. I think the only only fair use I see of for that CNCF landscape is either like to scare people <laughs> for a vendor solution or put it on like that huge screen that they do at like CN, uh, KubeCon <laughs> keynotes. Like that's when those logos are actually visible, Jason. That's right. That's the only time you can see one without zooming in like mm -hmm. a, a thousand percent. Uh, and you're right. I have in my developer advocacy days absolutely yep. used that as a scary thing. I'm like, you think this is good? It is, yeah. but mm -hmm. have fun. That, that's my answer when everyone's like, you work at an open source company how do you make money yeah. take a look at that picture pick a couple and you let me know if you want to pay or not <laughs> that's awesome okay so next question is more around like the manageability and day to operations right like is there a way it can be like an open source solution or it can be like a solution from SUSE. like is there a way to manage all these remote k3s clusters from a single pane of glass where i can apply the same policies, I can monitor everything together. Like, is, the, is there a solution out there? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm laughing because this is so much of like the bane of my existence is figuring out the single pane of glass. Let me talk about why this is so funny to me because yeah. we, we mentioned a couple minutes ago, thinking in the scale of 10,000 edge nodes, visualizing that and finding mm -hmm. a way to show this information in a consumable, useful way is a very non-trivial answer. Um, yep. I, I mentioned th at the outset that a lot of this is blazing new territory and scale is absolutely one of them that we are looking at these, these massive, massive tens of thousands of machine deployments, single pane of glass there. I mean, just between the two of us trying to picture that much less implemented yep. is a little bit fuzzy. Um, 
you know, at SUSE, we are incredibly lucky to have the Rancher Project. Um, mm-hmm. Rancher is fantastic at this. Um, and it is one of the reasons why our edge department has seen the success it has is because we have this kind of strong integration. We have the strong backing of SUSE Manager and Rancher and this ability to manage large machines at scale. And what a couple of my uh, coworkers on the edge team are working with is, okay, uh, how do we visualize that? Uh, And that is still uh, a very much evolving answer. Um, But the question is extremely valid because, you know, and I tell my students this all the time. First thing I do in like the beginning of classes, I was like, you guys have a laptop, maybe a gaming PC, maybe your Mm -hmm. mom and dad's PC, you help them admin. You know, that gets an update. We reboot it. We go drink, get a coffee and come back and it's yep. done. I was like, wait, that's not an option anymore when you look at this scale. You don't yep. just press a button and walk away and say, yeah, I'm sure it's going to be fine. Uh, <laughs> so uh, using something like Rancher and using the extension mechanism in there to add on these extra features and mm-hmm. using the the edge work that we are doing to be able to visualize and kind of federate that entire approach um, is absolutely crucial because again, sure, open source, you could potentially put that all together on your own, but why do that when you have someone focusing on it and you can leverage that and then use that to do your 10,000s of deployments? Okay. No, I think that's a, that's a valid answer, right? Uh, But okay. That, (laughs) sorry, I'm going off script here. I want to make sure that I'm asking you this question. Uh, So how do like, okay, how do I, uh, can you share some of the customer stories, right? How are they actually using this in the real world? Like we, we have some some examples already uh, on our uh, uh, existing episodes, but like, do, can you share a, a few examples from customers that you work with that are using these technologies, right? And you don't have to name names if you don't want to, but I just want to like see or share, hear more stories about this thing in real life. Um, yeah, I'm trying to filter out in my head so I don't, Get in trouble. This is where me being a tech nerd, I'm very, very scared. Yeah. You just say customers. I'm like, I can't talk about that. <laughs> um, I think it comes down to um, considerations you want to take in mind in terms of things like rolling deployments, things like yeah. Canary. And I know I'm saying things that you guys have, have come across before, but at the end of the day, um, each customer solution has its own kind of unique spin on things because mm-hmm. Everyone's got their own unique sets of problems. Um, yeah, you know, we, we we I've alluded to a lot of the different areas of edge, where you range from healthcare to military to cars to IoT. Um, all of those are going to end up doing their own thing. Um, some of it is. Um, managed from more of a central location where you do Mm -hmm. have this rancher and you're pushing things out. Uh, There are plenty of other options, especially when you get into air gap, that entire answer becomes different because now you are walking around with a USB key. Um, The important part is really comes down to the customer understanding their particular needs. And at that point, Mm -hmm. that's where I, I, hesitate to say anything more beyond kind of generics because I don't want to 
tip my yeah. hat at like, oh, so and so X Y Z government does this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't think we have that wide of a, a listener base where we have uh, like malicious actors listening to this. Like, oh, let me find out <laughs> which organizations are using the stupidest solution. No, nope. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I am also not clever enough to hide them correctly. So, like, <laughs> some government with a red, white, and blue flag is doing. The- I'm just kidding. I'm not saying anything at the US government. <laughs> That is funny, dude. Okay, okay, no, no, that works, right? I think uh, we, we all know, even there are examples on like CNCF's website and K3S's uh, official site that lists some of those customers out there. So there are people using this in the real world for sure. There are. Uh, and I would even say to, to continue to plug SUSE, um, we have those customer stories out there as well, written by um, people with lawyers looking over their shoulders to say that they're saying the right thing. Yeah, safer to read those. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay let, let's do a pivot right like i think this this discussion has been great uh, but i wanted to talk about ai and like that's one of the new questions that we have added in 2024 like uh, ask our guests like how are you thinking about ai how do you see ai being used in a good way you can also share a bad way if you want to but uh, how about like think about some of like share some of the use cases so if listener our listeners are just focused on chat gpt as the definition for ai they they come across different ideas and different thoughts on how how we can explore more of these options yeah and i'm going to answer this from more of the professor hat because this has in the past 2 years so mm-hmm. i've been teaching Effectively for 15 years. I took a little bit of time off when my kids were born, but um, only in the past two years have has the university have to sit there and say, okay, guys, we have to pay attention to this AI thing yeah. now. Um, so it's been kind of fascinating to me because uh, I am in my mid-40s. My students are in their early 20s, late teens. So there is enough of a generational gap there where it's almost ingrained with them already. Um, much mm-hmm. like my kids from age six understood really how to use an iPhone and navigate that as compared yeah. to my generation didn't struggle much. But you see where I'm going with this is that, yep. you know, this was foreign technology for a while. I have noticed the these younger kids, these college kids just diving into it. Um, I had one specifically asked me at the start of the semester two weeks ago, like, can we use AI in this class? I'm like, I don't actually know what that means, but I'm probably going to say no because I don't <laughs> trust it. Um, but at the same time, I had a student once, actually, he's, he's a coworker now. I asked him, I don't even know if I asked him specifically, but I was like thinking out loud in Slack and he like paced me this command and I was like, holy, that, this, this is exactly what I wanted to do. And he's like, yeah, I just asked ChatGPT that. Like, that's yep. kind of wild. Mm-hmm. Um, it has affected how I craft my class because... Uh, I imagine probably a good 95% of the people listening to this have solved Towers of Hanoi in code. Every language imaginable. Yep. Probably someone <laughs> did it in Minecraft. Um, so you suddenly can't ask generic questions. You have to get really tricky with the programming assignments and make it intentionally slightly vague and something no one's ever seen before. Um, but there have been times when I've absolutely let them embrace it when it makes sense. So yep. I had um, actually one of the cooler senior projects that uh, I had one of my students do. He used uh, CubeVert to spawn up virtual machines dynamically. The, the idea was it was a 3D space where you are doing an escape room. Okay. Uh, and you go up to a computer and you turn it on. And this is, again, like a 3D JavaScript space. And the computer itself is backed by a CubeVert um VM, uh, yeah. VM, thank you. Yeah. Uh, running on top of, I believe, K3S actually. It was definitely the SUSE suite. 
And uh, you interacted with that and solved puzzles in there and effectively, air quotes, hacked it to figure out the solution to escape the room. Now, as part of that, some of the assets he used in there, he just straight up used AI to generate. Um, and I would have never have known if there was two, there was two reasons. One, he told me he was very clear about it. Yeah. But number two, the only weird trick is the word basket was in the title for one of them and it had two Ks. But it was in this image that was generated that it, the, the image was so nice. It was an entire node-based um, mm -hmm. site. Very simplistic, but I had no idea if he hadn't told me. Um, so I guess this is, this is a slightly bad oh. take on it in the sense of this is becoming more and more difficult um, from the university perspective. Like, how do I get my students to actually write their papers versus yep. um, get AI to do it? And it's not quite as simple as you would think because I've had some very poor writers and the AI sounds a bit better. Uh, you're almost I like, know. you don't just use AI next time, please. I don't <laughs> want to create this again. Um, no, I, I agree. Right? Like I, 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 I didn't think about this before, but when you brought up the other side, like as a professor, like how do you enforce that students are not using AI? Yeah. I don't think there are any tools, even from OpenAI that have like, oh, this content was generated from AI or any, like I know... When I went to school, there was uh, there was some libraries that professors used to make sure that this is not plagiarized and it's not just picked up from the web. I don't think that sort of thing exists for AI-generated content yet, so it, it is difficult. No, that is exactly right. So we have um, the system that we handle um, basically student interactions within grading. Yep. It will run automatically check papers for exactly what you mentioned, looking mm -hmm. whatever it does in the back end. None of it is equipped for AI yet. Um, Taking this all back to edge, looking at the possibilities of, and this goes a little bit back to my idea of, we have all this data sitting on the edge and we don't necessarily want to send it back. If you're in that kind of limited communication spectrum mm -hmm. of edge, uh, think even not even necessarily air gap, but think military where you don't yeah. have a ethernet plug to plug in and you're very bandwidth constrained because of satellite or because you're a submarine or something, being able to do much more of that processing on the edge side and having AI assist with that is completely fascinating because yeah. now we have our ability to administer these systems remotely uh, and, and do everything we need to do in terms of upgrade and uptime, but letting them start to handle more and more of it at the edge and Ooh. dynamically adapt without yeah. the need to call back into the data center and say, here's my three terabytes of data figure out the best way of doing this, those can start to learn on the edge systems. Um, and I think that's really going to get fascinating, continue to push us away from the model we've gotten into in the last 20 years of everything sits in an awesome looking data center with all these <laughs> blinky lights. And I, I say that every data center I've ever seen has had wires hanging from the ceiling, an actual box fan set up somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I just had to order. confess like last week to my teammates that I was a shitty like wiring guy like whenever i worked in a data center like they were talking about how pristine their cabling looks like oh they have tie, a tie a zip ties everywhere and like oh nope you should you, you shouldn't look how i work or you shouldn't see how i work in a data center environment exactly i tell my students that too i was like it looks so cool in movies and i'm like and yeah. then you get there in real world and there's a sticky note that says do not press this button the entire <laughs> company will end <laughs> yeah. and i know that because i'm the one looking at the button going 
God, I really want to press it and see what happens. I know, like, yeah, see what happens, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that was a great response to our question about like how to think about AI. That definitely like opened up some some possibilities or some thoughts at least. Uh, I want to, as you said, right, bring it back to the K3S discussion. How can people get started? How can they contribute to the community? How can they learn more or experiment or ha- get their hands dirty with, with K3S? Any any recommendations? Yeah, yeah, and I love that phrasing, the hands dirty, because like I said at the outset, this is one of my favorite things about K3S is that if you are brand new to Kubernetes and uh, starting to figure it out, K3S is such a great uh, avenue for that because it is so low resources. So k3s.io, um, that is going to be, you know what, hang on, let me double check that. Let me make sure I didn't say that. K3s.io. It's one of those things that I've typed once and autocomplete the rest of it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. I, I am correct. K3s.io. Uh, that would be embarrassing. Um, well, it, it's kind of our landing page for it. And that mm-hmm. is going to have your traditional why you use K3s and so forth. But you will notice in the top right of that page, there is a basically curl bash command. That is literally all you need to do. Copy and paste that running on your machine. Um, From there, you can find links to the community. It is um, an open source project. It has actually been donated to the CNCF. So you have all of those resources available. You would with every other Kubernetes project. This isn't a SUSE in-house type of thing that we're like, no, stay away. Um, (laughs) It is very much open. We are very much an open source company. and it is so lightweight that the hardware, it runs on, I should also be clear, x86 and uh, Arch64. So you've got your nice shiny new Mac M1 that mm-hmm. doesn't run 40% of the things you're used to because they're not x86. <laughs> K3S will in fact run though. And uh, you know, if it sounds like I am has some PTSD from that, it's completely true because it's been an interesting couple of years working on them. But uh, all of that is supported by K3S. So K3S.io okay. is a great starting point. Um, from there, you will find everything from GitHub to community links and um, plenty of people to interact with. And then in terms of getting your hands dirty, I genuinely believe that is the best way. Um, I've had students use it for their senior projects. And mm-hmm. um, wow, this is very difficult to say without sounding obnoxious, but they are not the most technically savvy at that age. <laughs> um, so being able to say, yes, they, they were able to install K3S is a lot yeah. bigger deal than it probably sounds like. No, uh, dude, like, trust me, like I, when I was uh, at, at school, like I was doing my master's, somebody just gave me like an ESXi ISO and they're like, yeah, go and install v- vSphere and like get uh, a VMware environment up and running. And I had no clue. Like, I was like, how, what do I do? You gave me a USB and pointed me to a rack full of servers. Like, well, what's next? Yeah. So uh, agreed. Like, yeah, it, this is a learning experience. And a curl command is definitely way easier than installing ASXI. I will definitely take that. <laughs> yeah, you know, once you get over, and it's funny because for, for the younger, uh, less experienced engineers, yeah. that's absolutely easiest. And then you have your occasional admin who's like, are you really expecting me to run a curl bash on my machine? You're like, that's a very fair assessment. Check the documentation. It's going to give you some more information. <laughs> awesome. Okay, no, uh, Jason, like this has been an awesome conversation. Like I'll make sure I'll include all of those links, uh, some some of the sessions that I found useful while doing some research. Uh, I'll make sure that I link to your LinkedIn page. If you have any other ways people can reach out to you, let me know. Uh, and I, we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, LinkedIn is best for now. Um, happy to engage anyone who wants to talk about it or just generally talk nerdy stuff. Um, this was a blast. Thank you for having me. I uh, Like I said, it's been a long time since I've got a chance to nerd out and just laugh about this kind of stuff. And this was really cool. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much.
that was a great episode i love how you focus not just on k3s but also how his students at villanova university are using artificial intelligence and how the professors are just trying to keep up and and advising students on when and when not to use uh, gen ai technologies uh, but going to going back to key takeaways uh, specifically focused on k3s uh, i like the point where i just want to reiterate the point that jason brought up right like the security hardening work that has already been done the workflows that have already been built the ci cd automation the api the the ability to interact with the kubernetes api uh, the familiarity that all of us have uh, with kubernetes inside our data center or cloud environments can now be extended to the edge just because we have something a, a very small footprint like a 100 meg footprint solution like k3s available in the ecosystem so uh, k3s can be used not just to Uh, not just as part of our CI/CD pipelines, as that lightweight Kubernetes compatible distribution, but also at at these edge locations. And one thing that caught my eye, or re- I really liked, was how Jason wants us to think about uh, high availability in a different way when it comes to these edge environments. Right? Again, if you are an admin that is already responsible for these edge architecting these edge solutions, this might not be new to you, but it was definitely new to me that uh, HA is not really uh, a strict Uh, thing that people have to follow like the definition for high availability and resiliency at the edge can definitely change and can be different from organization to organization from edge location to edge location so from things like just the ability to run a single node server but then having uh, making sure that it always sends the summary of all the data that has it has accumulated and analyzed back to the data center uh, that's okay but there are situations when you can scale up solutions like k3s to a three node deployment with maybe an etcd if not a sqlite instance run your csi plugins have persistent data uh, at the, those edge locations that is possible as well so i think this discussion more evolved into like the art of possible right like what else what can we do with k3s or what else can we do with k3s uh, so i think I, i would like to like uh, just keep that in mind uh, when thinking about these edge solutions uh, again uh, thank like thank you for giving us the feedback and so we can always improve our content let me know if there are any other episode suggestions that you might have you can reach out to me directly through linkedin slack uh, twitter any of those social media channels uh, if not uh, maybe in person at some conference right but i think that's that brings us to the end of today's episode uh, before we sign off i want to make sure that like uh, i reiterate like please give us five star ratings on the podcast app that you use to listen to our podcast or hit subscribe and like and share the episode on youtube uh, if you if you watch us on youtube this brings us to the end of another episode i'm bhavan and thank you for joining another episode of kubernetes bites thank you for listening to the kubernetes bites podcast 